I opened this RFC for Rust, and one of the comments somebody left on Reddit was, I can't wait to see the bike shed on this one. <laughs> and people thought that they meant that they expected people to be bike shedding over the RFC. Maybe they did. How do you know they what did. they meant? <laughs> because it required clarification. But I just thought, I thought that was pretty funny. So I feel like we need to clarify that like we are recording this far in advance of when anybody is likely to hear it. Mm -hmm. But at the time we're recording this, and I know this is a conversation you don't want to have, <laughs> but it's a conversation I feel like I want to have. And you can jump in anytime you want and tell me to stop or you can join in. Okay. Are you ready? Okay. So June 1st, a tweet comes out that claims from one Jeff Atwood. Jeff is one of the founders of Stack Overflow and also of Discourse, the forum software. And uh, is Sam a, is Sam a co-founder or is he just a... Yeah. Okay, Sam Saffron, former guest of the show, had written a blog post about Rails performance things, which we may or may not talk about. We've talked, we've talked a lot about them in the past, so maybe we can address them briefly and tell people if they want to hear particulars about those performance issues where they might be able to hear more about that but so he he tweets out the link to the blog post and says that it's unfortunate that rails has institutionalized an attitude of not caring about performance when i first read that i was like well that's wrong <laughs> right there's a lot of people i know that work on rails yourself included and also you know aaron and eileen, eileen. and Raphael, and like any number of people who who work on rails care about these things to varying degrees some of them to a lot of a degree and it's true that some people who work on Rails care less about that, right? I don't think anybody mm -hmm. actively doesn't care about performance, right. but anyway. Uh, I would say there are some people who actively give zero shits about performance, but that's <laughs> fine. Not everybody has to care. Okay. So the tweet is there, and I'm, I read it, and I think like, hmm, this person has said a thing that is wrong, and they said it on the internet. That's unfortunate for them, because I'm sure this is not going to go well. Right, And so I read into the comments and predictably, I think one of the first comments was from Aaron, who was just like, I'm kind of offended by this. <laughs> like, I'm like, you could tell he was bothered, like that yeah. somebody would say that about work that he's put into the framework, clearly spent a lot of time on it. But Jeff keeps digging <laughs> is really the problem. And so I'm watching this, and I'm watching this. And so I tweet out something that basically, because I know at this point it's made the, it's been retweeted and quoted. And so I tweeted out something that basically said that this was just so far from wrong and people should pay no mind to it basically. Mm -hmm. But I can't let it go <laughs> because like I like to let people make mistakes on the internet and anywhere really. And then just like be like, okay, made a mistake. But like when people double down on the mistake that they're making is where I start to get angry. And then also when they do it in a manner that casts aspersions upon people I know and like, right, it riles me up. And so I had seen you have a little bit of a back and forth and then some other people have a back and forth. And then I see him like, tweeting out things that are like links to the top Git repositories, like the top starred Git repositories, and claiming that because none of them use Rails, that it's evidence that somehow Rails doesn't care about performance or something. Something it's, like that, yeah. It's a really weird tweet. And so finally, I was like, I don't even understand what point you're trying to make because Rails is a framework for making web applications and this is not a list of web applications. So what, like, just what is happening here? 
I, I think he was trying to imply that like there should be other open source Rails apps besides just Discourse and RubyGems.org and the Red Hat project that I'm forgetting the name of. But I looked at that list and there wasn't like there were open source other web applications right. on no, there. That's like, the thing is that I don't think that's a common thing in any language or framework. So anyway, that's where we were with that. And so I tweeted again in frustration about that. Still, I think it's clear that I'm angry, but not mean or intentionally being mean anyway, maybe a little bit. I found it funny that I got public replies and direct messages saying like that they didn't know that I had <laughs> that in me to like argue with people on the internet. Uh, <laughs> but like I said, the combination of somebody doubling down on something, because like I, I said dumb things on the internet and on podcasts before. And when it's mm -hmm. brought to my attention, I say like, oh, that was dumb shouldn't have said that right yeah especially when it's brought to my attention by people that i've directly offended or hurt right so i don't know i just sprung into action there uh <laughs> and for my efforts have earned uh before the show i just found out about this because before the show i was like what happened with that thread was there ever like a like a mea culpa like um i didn't handle this properly or not so i was like let me go look i guess i'll plunge into jeff's replies and see what's happening and uh he has blocked me so i don't know ah there we go <laughs> Yeah, around the time that I stopped replying, because I had actually taken that day off to try and deal with some anxiety issues. So <laughs> that was all very poorly timed. So I eventually just decided to mute everybody involved and go on with my day. Yeah, that was probably a wise decision. There wasn't anything like I don't know, the other thing that really bugs me is like he's built a company on these people's efforts mm -hmm. who he is now <laughs> casting. I mean, clearly he is not satisfied on behalf of the entire Rails team. If Jeff, if you're listening, I'd like to offer you a full refund. <laughs> and who knows like i like i said there's perhaps some grand tweet that he has offered that is a recantment or partial apology or something but i don't know i can't see it so as to the specifics of the article that sam posted mm -hmm. it had a lot to do we'll we'll post a link to that in the show notes and people can read over it, it had a lot to do with things that we've actually discussed on the show before dealing with like memory allocation when you're creating objects from active record queries basically right and one of the primary ways that you intend to deal with that is through this fast attributes work that you've been doing. Correctly. Yeah. So that was not included in the original article, which I found unfortunate because the meat of the article makes it sound like the entire thing is about the problem that fast attributes fixes. And Sam has had access to that repo since March. And in fact, I asked them to help me get some benchmark numbers uh, on discourse for it. But he eventually replied and noted that things were slightly slower with the gem included, which actually makes sense because I, when I looked over the benchmarks a second time, it was accessing exactly one field on the on the model. We've and talked about we, that. Yeah, we've talked yeah. about that on the show. That specific use case that like who acts whoever like if you're going to access one thing on the on the model, this is going to be slower. But you're probably not doing that. Right. And then at two is usually where the performance is equal, and then it scale. You know, the performance gains scale linearly with the number of fields that you access after that. But no. So then when I started, I noticed though that the number of object allocations was way higher than I would have expected even with this gem included. So I started to wonder what is actually getting allocated. And I haven't actually dug too deeply into this, but what it looks like from just looking at some of his output is the main thing that he actually has a beef with is that we are allocating Ruby strings for the before typecast version of every attribute, uh, regardless of whether or not you read it. Because mm -hmm. we basically have a hash map where the values are the database values. And his magic, whatever he called it, is actually passing around a series of basically the Postgres result objects and then a row number and a column number and always accessing things through that so that if you never access anything 
the Ruby string doesn't get created, which like we could look at doing, but actually passing around that glob of data the way that he is would increase complexity way too much. Like a lot of the discussion was around performance and API ergonomics as, and, and you know, those are the two things that people care about and implying that you can't care about one without giving up the other, which is not true. But there's also other things that have to come into consideration. A big one is how likely is this to introduce bugs into the code base, not just now, but from contributors in the future? How do, does this make it sub substantially harder for new contributors to come work on this code base? Mm -hmm. So things that, that dramatically increase complexity like that or are error prone, I try to avoid. So I would, wa I would want to look into what's actually the main cause of slowness there. Is it the creation of the Ruby object or is it the mem copy? Like if we could encapsulate this in another object that was just a Postgres result, a row number, and a column number, we would actually be doubling the R allocations per field. Well, in addition to the Ruby string, we'd have this other object that's getting created. Mm -hmm. But if the thing that's slow is the mem copy, not the allocation, which is what I, I suspect, that might be a good 80-20 solution. But I haven't had a chance to dig into it too, too deeply. But that appears to be the thing that, that he had a, a big beef with was the creation of all of these strings for things that you're never reading which yeah that's a fair point that's a thing that we can that we can avoid but that does get into some, some of my frustration with that article in, in general it didn't really get into specifics or like how we think we can fix it in active record it was it mostly just came off as yeah this is bad and you should feel bad here's a thing that i wrote that handles exactly this one use case and nothing else that is way faster right that's fair, but at least, it, I don't know. It just to me reading that it remained above board at least. <laughs> Whereas yes. the discussion, oh no, it, yeah, it was it was a frustrating <laughs> article, but not one that like I was offended by or anything like right. that. Right, right. If you want to hear more, if this is like your first time listening to this show, <laughs> I think the very first time we talk about fast attributes, which is the the Rust thing you're writing to address some of this, is on episode one thirty four. Also, uh, Sam Saffron has been a guest on the show way back on episode 17, where he we talked about performance and benchmarking and things like that. So it's also one of my favorite episodes. So he was a great guest to have on the show. So you can uh, listen to that episode if you're interested. What else? Do you have anything else on this topic? I don't know. I think just when you're writing articles like that, one of the things that I'm starting to, to wonder is like, what is the end goal that they hope to achieve? I think that there's this isn't directed at at this specific article, but more in general when writing a blog article like this. I would I would think about what is the the result that you want to see. Could this come in the form of a pull request, or if is the goal just to get other people to work on something for you? And if it's the if it's the latter, make sure that you have enough information there, preferably you know in the form of executable scripts for the people to quickly and easily get on the same page as you about whatever problem you're saying exists. Yeah. Particularly somebody like Sam, who knows when he writes something, people who are in a position to do something about it are going to read it, right? Yeah. Versus somebody else who's just like, I noticed this weird thing. Maybe it's okay for you to be like, I've noticed this weird thing. Has anybody else noticed this, right? That's different from like, here's this giant problem. I can replicate that giant problem. Here are the numbers I'm getting. And then not providing the ability to kind of tweak those when you know that somebody, the people reading it are going to be actually in a good position to help you. Yeah. Potentially. And you know. Always just remember that it is substantially easier to demonstrate that something could theoretically be faster than to actually make it faster and keep the entire Rails test suite passing. <laughs> sure. Did you want to discuss your RFC? We can. I don't know if it'll be interesting or not. How about we, we could start and then if, if it's the dullest thing ever, then just stop me. <laughs> Let's see where it goes. Okay. So I wrote an RFC called Re-Rebalancing Coherence. 
Oh boy. And uh, <laughs> it's re-rebalancing coherence because this is an amendment to an old RFC which was titled Rebalancing Coherence. There was never an RFC that was titled Balancing Coherence, unfortunately. But So coherence is a rather important piece of Rust type system. And anything that, uh, what's, the, what's the actual technical term for, for type systems that use type classes? Is it ad hoc polymorphism? Absolutely. <laughs> anyway, where you have interfaces or traits or type classes, however, mm-hmm. wh- whatever you call them, and the implementation is separated from the definitions of the type itself. I'm going to call it ad hoc polymorphism. I'm pretty sure that's the right term. And if it's not, then I'll just sound stupid the whole time. That's okay. Um, anyway, Rust and Haskell and, and the ML family of languages are all generally have this sort of polymorphism. And because the implementation is separate from the type and implementations can apply to multiple types, you can end up in situations where implementations potentially overlap. So, you know, you could say, here's an implementation for all type T where T implements trait A, and then here's an implementation for all type T where T implements trait B. And if something implements both A and B, then they could overlap. Exactly. So coherence is basically figuring out what to do in this situation and how languages go about solving this differs wildly. So for Haskell, implementations or instances are what they're called in Haskell actually have to be explicitly imported or at least the module they come from has to be explicitly imported, or they don't apply. And then you will get an error if you try to import two instances which overlap, unless you set a language flag to allow overlapping instances, in which case the compiler basically will just pick one at random. It's not actually random, but it is, you know, it picks one, deterministically picks one, but it, it basically is random. Scala uh, uses something called implicit variables to solve this problem, and it has very complex hierarchical rules for which implicit variable takes precedent over the others. So that is how Scala solves it. Rust solves it by having orphan rules and basically making it you cannot define an implementation, not only that overlaps with another implementation, but you also can't define one that might potentially overlap with uh, another implementation. You know, in the example of, of that A and B overlapping case, right, that only actually overlaps if there is a type which does, in fact, implement both A and B. And if that type never exists, those implementations never overlap. But they could potentially overlap, so Rust disallows it. And so the end result is that there is always exactly one implementation that could ever apply. How would it know they could potentially, like if type A and type B, like let's say I provide type A, you provide type B, and a third party provides an implementation for type A and type B. Right. So because that third party could potentially exist, you can still write impl foo for t where t implements trait a. Mm -hmm. And then if you try to add the one, the second one that is where foo implements trait b or where t implements trait b, that is when it will error. And it'll say that these two uh, implementations overlap, even even though it only overlaps when that if that type exists, it says, nope, you can't write this because somebody somewhere could write a type which implements both a and b. And I think now even the error message explicitly states that some other crate could implement uh, uh, could create a type which implements both so even if nothing in your current build implements both you're still not allowed to do this right okay how does rust know that something can implement both a and b isn't that just anything could potentially implement both right. two two things yes okay so then so you... that, i mean that, so that's why these implementations would never be allowed to exist okay you can have one just not both and so the reason for this there there are two main goals behind the current set of rules. And the first one is making sure that adding another crate to your build never just causes your build to break. So that's why, for example, you can't have those two overlapping implementations because some other crate might have a type that implements both A and B. 
and Rust wants to make it so that adding that crate would never potentially break things. So that's the first piece. And then that also comes into why what's called the orphan rule exists. And the orphan rule basically says that when you're implementing a trait for a type, either the trait must be local to your crate or the type must be local to your crate. So you can't implement hmm. you know, some, some trait from another crate for string because you don't own the trait or the type. And because you don't do that, don't own either one, that means theoretically some other crate could also implement that trait for string. And then we get back into adding these two crates to your build together would cause your build to break because they have overlapping implementations. Okay. That part makes sense to me. Yeah. So that's sort of like the hard rule. And then the second part of the set of rules, and this is why it's balancing coherence, is more of a goal. And the goal is to allow crates to add implementations to other traits, implementations of new traits for existing types backwards compatibly. If we didn't allow this, or if we didn't have rules in place to try and allow you to, to add new implementations in the future, it would be way too easy for any user of your crate to write an implementation which will break if you just add an impl a new implementation of an existing trait for an existing type, um, which is a thing that you just always want to be able to do within reason. So the saying that you must own the trait or own the type is actually a bit of an oversimplification because that does end up being very restrictive and there are certain implementations that we want to allow people to write. So one example of this would be simple from my type for string. You can just do, you know, string from an instance of your type or your type.into mm -hmm. and the compiler will, will be able to convert it to a string. Now you don't own from or string. Those both live in lib standard but we want to allow you to be able to write that. But what we don't want to allow you to write is impl from my type for t. Now there's this battle being fought if we, if we allowed you to write that. So that's what's called a blanket impl, an impl that, that has some type parameter which just appears bare by itself. It applies to all types. If we allowed you to write impl from my type for t, then we can no longer allow somebody else to write impl from t for my type. Let's say you have options and a good example. There's impl from t for option t, uh, where it just wraps it in, in sum. And if we allowed crates downstream to write impl from my type for t, then we would no longer be able to add impls even for new traits or for brand new types even. It has nothing to do with new traits. But for, you would, even if it's uh, the first time you've ever introduced a type, you couldn't implement a trait for it with a, with a blanket implementation backwards compatibly. And that's bad. So the big problem is that the current rules don't allow you to have type parameters appear at all in positions that it is useful to allow them. So for example, you can't write impl from my type for vec t. Okay. Even though you can totally write impl from my type for vec i32 or anything where it's a concrete type that you don't own, Yep. we don't allow you to have type parameters appear anywhere in the type being targeted. Got it. And so this causes a problem. So this came up in Diesel because somebody is writing an Oracle adapter for Diesel. And there are traits. Apologies to that person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are traits. So the, the, so the first place that this came up, we just sort of lucked out and we were able to rejigger things to make this work. So the first place this came up was a trait called internal save changes DSL, which was generic over the connection being passed and the return type. So save changes basically is just update self dot set self dot returning star and then you know deserializes into whatever type you requested that fits. 
but then has to abstract over the connection because for MySQL and SQLite, which don't support the returning clause, we actually have to go do two queries and uh, you know do a filter yeah. by ID. So the problem is, and this gets implemented for your models. So self is you know like user connection would be say PG connection, and then return type could also be user. And so the problem is the the coherence rules today. You could totally write from the Oracle crate. You could totally write impl internal save changes DSL Oracle connection user for user, but you cannot write impl save changes DSL Oracle connection T for T. In fact, we never want to allow you to write that at all for the reasons that I stated earlier. Mm -hmm. But that was the impl that they basically needed to write. And so this case, we were able to just fix this by rejiggering the position of things because you always want to implement this trait from the side of a connection. Mm-hmm. Like that is the only reason this ever changes is because you are using a different database backend. Right. And this was also an internal trait. So we were able to just move it around. So now instead of being implemented on the model, you implement it on the connection and has two type parameters, the model being updated and the, and the type you're returning. So that works in that case. But then the second place that they ran into problems was in our main, like turn this AST into SQL trait called query fragment. And so query fragment is generic over the backend. And so the backend is, again, going to be a, a type that is local to your crate. So you'd be doing impl query DSL Oracle for some type. The problem is that that type is going to end up being non-local if you're implementing a new connection. For example, the syntax that they have to use to insert more than one record at a time is different on Oracle. So what they have to do is write impl query fragment Oracle for batch insert TU. So T and U are two generic type parameters here. And they can't write that because there's a type parameter that appears in the type being implemented. And the the current rules specifically say that a type parameter, it, it can appear in the list of types as long as it is after the first local type. And the type being implemented is always considered first. So that's quote unquote T0. And then the type parameters to the trait are T1, T2, yada, yada, yada. So the proposal that I've made is we can actually completely ignore whether type parameters appear in the type being implemented or not. Because we already allow you to implement traits, foreign traits, for a completely foreign type, as long as the, the first type parameter for that trait is a, is a type local to your crate. And given that we allow that, there's no fundamental difference for allowing impl from my type for vec t versus impl from my type for vec i32. And Basically, the RFC then lays out all of the logical steps you can take to prove that this does not cause new holes in the orphan rule. It's still, it would be impossible for any any crate to write a, an implementation that could potentially conflict with a sibling crate. Mm-hmm. And it also does not restrict the ability to add implementations of existing traits for existing types in ways that weren't already considered major rigging changes. And the reason this is important is because the query fragment case, we can't just flip it around because this is a case where we actually want to allow people to extend it on both sides. We want to allow people to write new connection adapters, and those are going to have to provide query fragment impulse for places that there is syntax specific to that backend. We also want to allow people, though, to add new AST nodes that are generic and aren't specific to any one connection. We couldn't just flip it around in this case and have it be like, you know, impl query fragment, or we call it like walk AST or something, right? We couldn't make the self-type the type parameter and then the type parameter the self-type. We couldn't do impl walk AST whatever for backend because then that would, we, you'd run into the exact same problem when you try to add new AST nodes from another crate because now you're trying to say impl walk AST my local type for T. 
And again, that's a thing that we, that we never want to allow. Even with this proposal, we do not allow you to implement a blanket impl like that for a uh, for a foreign trait. But anyway, so so for the cases where you want to allow extensions on both sides, it's important to loosen the rules a little bit. So that's what this proposal does. How's it being received? It hasn't gotten uh, any review from the, the teams who are going to make the final decision yet, but the people who have looked at it so far seemed to like it. If nothing else, a lot of people mentioned that this, cause there's a section where I make sure that coherence is clearly defined, why it set up, why the rules are what they are, what the goals are. And a lot of people commented that, they, that it was the best um, explanation of coherence they'd ever seen. So that was, that was cool. Okay. Well, awesome. Good luck. Thank you. <laughs> I suspect it should get through. It's a very conservative, like there's been some talk of let's look at completely reworking these rules in a much more substantial fashion, or at least add new diagnostics to opt into different sets of rules. And I think maybe that is a path that we eventually want to go down. But this is a fairly conservative addition that makes sense even if we eventually plan on doing a more a more in-depth reworking. So I think it's got a good chance of getting through for that reason. Keep us posted. <laughs> Do you want to talk about career advice? Sure. Let's do it. So the other day, I direct messaged you on Slack and I said, Hey, Sean, do you get people emailing you for career advice? And you said, yes, I do. Several a week. And I think I get less than you, but I still get at least one to two a week usually, which is a weird position to be in, I think. Like I understand it because I have a podcast and I speak at conferences mm -hmm. and I ask people to contact me all the time. Um, <laughs> so that's cool. But I always feel like a little uneasy about answering things because I always, I, the conversation we had, I think, which I think sums it up is like, my advice always boils down to like, here's what worked in my specific case. And so I can really only help you if I draw corollaries from your experience to my experience and really the fact that I was quote unquote successful for some definition of success has as much to do with luck as it does my particular strategy, luck or privilege mm -hmm. or whatever you want to call it, right? As it does my particular strategy. So I'm happy to answer these questions for people, but I always have to couch it in that heavy dose of like, here's what works for me or potentially like if they're talking about advice from, from like a hiring manager's perspective, I can say like, here's what I look for specifically, but I've only ever done this at BotBot for this, you know, like, so this is my advice on, on that front. And I just thought that maybe there might be some commonalities to the things that people ask that maybe we could address on the show that might answer some other people's questions or these people's questions. I'm not attempting to discourage people from, from reaching sure. out, more just like if this many people are reaching out, I wonder if there's a good chunk of people out there who have similar questions that aren't and wouldn't mind hearing from us on this. Sure. I mean, for me, usually the only ones that I, of these that I get that I'll actually reply to are where they're asking like some specific questions and they have an actual specific situation that they would like some input on because then I feel like I have something to add. A lot of the the emails that I get that I just generally ignore um, are something along the lines of, um, hey, so I bought this book on Rails. How do I become a web developer? <laughs> the ones I get are more involved in that. Generally, it's like, I'm currently doing this. I'm trying to find work as a junior developer or an apprentice or something like that. What do you think a good next step is? Right? Or something like that. I try and reply to everybody and sometimes even just the ones that are vague, I just say like, I don't really have enough information here to help you, but like, here are some good resources on what you could do next, which is like, here's a hardle tutorial. Here's agile web development with rails, that kind of thing. Those ones aren't, those ones aren't too bad. Well, there's a big difference though, right? Between how do I get a job and how do I learn rails? Yes, absolutely. 
or even like sometimes people ask like what technology should i be like as somebody who's trying to break into this industry what technology should i be approaching and my answer to that is generally like it doesn't really matter whatever one you want because there's jobs in all of them and so whatever you're going to have good access to like if you if you know somebody who you can bounce ideas off of locally or something like that then that one that's the one you should pick <laughs> um, or if you know a company that you want to work for and they use a certain technology then like that's a good choice Speaking of there's always jobs in whatever technology you choose, <laughs> I got a recruiter email about a Delphi position. Yeah, because you are a Delphi expert. I mean, 10 <laughs> years ago, I was a nov- I, I used it once for like a month in a job. Right. I just found it very humorous that there's still people recruiting Delphi programmers. I bet it pays really, really, really well because they're harder to find. Yeah. Uh, so maybe I guess the answer is Delphi. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're in it for the money, I don't know if this is still true, but like five or six years ago, the best language to learn in terms of median salary was COBOL. Yeah, that makes sense. Yep. It's used by a lot of places with a lot of money. Yep. <laughs> and it's, and and it's they critical. Don't, and they, they hate having to find people to replace them. <laughs> so yeah, that's a good idea. I'm trying to think of like what else stands out about these emails that like I find myself giving the same advice. And I think it's like a lot of people who have done the first steps, like they've done the books, they've done the Hartle tutorial and they don't know what to do next. And sometimes people even cite the off-cited example of like build something that solves a problem you have, right? And they're like, but I don't, I'm not capable of building the thing that ha- that solves the problems I have or like I can't think of anything to build or or something like that. And my answer to that is always like, then build something that solves a problem you don't have. Like, just build something. You know, it can be like even just a re-implementation, like re-implement Twitter, re-implement a blog, right. re-implement whatever. One caveat that never gets mentioned that I like to add on, ideally something that doesn't rely on a lot of heavy API integrations. Because then you're not so much learning about how to build a web app, you're learning about how to use this specific API, which is a less transferable skill. Right. And the other advice I find myself giving often that people, I guess, have commented back to me that they don't hear a lot of other places, which maybe makes it good advice or maybe makes it terrible advice, I guess, (laughs) is to treat whatever project you're working on as much as possible like you would treat the project you work on for whatever job you might get. Mm -hmm. So that means writing really good explanatory commits like you're explaining them to somebody else on your team. It means submitting a pull request, even if nobody's going to review it, just to be like, hey, look, I know how pull requests work. Right. Right. And then maybe if you get a pull request and you have somebody else who's like, maybe they're also a fresh bootcamp grad or something like that. And they're both looking for jobs. You can review each other's stuff. Right. Just to show that you understand the workflow, because there's that's as much a part of it as anything else. And so that's advice I've given people. And they've said that, you know, they haven't heard that elsewhere and have appreciated that. And that's something that can grab my attention. If somebody's like, here's a thing, you know, I've been working on. I'd love to have your thoughts on it. If I see like really good, what I refer to as Git hygiene (laughs) on a project, then like, it's like, okay, this person's understands the communication aspects of this job um, which is key no and i agree with the general advice of like if you want to grow your skills try building something because that's how you learn what you don't know is by trying to do it and then saying oh i don't know how to do whatever this next piece is i guess i have to go learn how to do that i think the same advice applies to when people aren't sure if they're ready or not to start looking for jobs yet like Mm -hmm. Just go apply for one and see what happens. And potentially, if you're really unready, you will recognize by yourself that like, okay, yeah, this doesn't work. And you'll see where where the failure in the process was. Other times, if you don't get a job, ask for feedback, find out why you didn't get it and learn what you need to improve on that way. Right. And the asking for feedback thing can be hard to do, but also uh, from somebody who's on the other side of those emails where people are asking for feedback about jobs they didn't get, 
I think there's a couple things you can do to make it more likely that you might get feedback. And that's to make it clear that like you're not looking to enter into an argument. <laughs> like you can right. be like, oh, it's unfortunate that I'm not a fit for this position right now. I understand that. I'm wondering if there's anything you can tell me that might make me a fit for this or other positions like it in the future at this company or others. You know, like just make it clear that you're not looking to enter an argument where you're like, where you say like, oh, do you have any feedback? And then they offer you feedback. And because I've had that happen too before where people ask for feedback, I give feedback and they reply with like, I think you missed like X, Y, Z. It's like, oh, this is why I don't want to give feedback to people. (laughs) Right. I didn't want to get in. Like, I didn't give you every bit of feedback we have on you. I gave you the polite feedback. And what I thought was immediately actionable, that kind of thing. Right. And if the feedback is you're a jerk, <laughs> people don't, won't actually tell you that. So don't be right. I probably wouldn't. If somebody was actually just a jerk, I probably wouldn't reply to their request for feedback. I'm trying to think of like things that I've had people not get hired for that like if they ask for feedback would never get mentioned. I think bad personal hygiene is definitely <laughs> one that has happened several times. <laughs> and yeah, generally being argumentative or difficult to work with. Yeah, that would probably just get the we've decided other candidates are a better fit for us at this time, which is actually the rejection email that we send most people. Right. And then if they ask for more, we give more. Or if I deem that like there are a few times where we get candidates who I feel like in one way or another, generally it's the like, I feel like this person is going to be really successful somewhere, but they're just not quite ready to work at a consulting company right Mm -hmm. now. And that feedback tends to be, I, I tend to just like immediately offer like the, a little bit more detailed where I'm saying, where I say like, I really think you'd fit in well on the, cons- like the actual interpersonal parts of consulting, but like to be billable on client work, there's more development needed here. And like, particularly these skills, right? Something like right. that. I like having those interactions because it's like, basically the way I say it is like, I think you're going to be successful somewhere. Right. If you're interested in someday re-engaging at ThoughtBot, here's what we would look for. And here's what I think might also help in those other places and that kind of overlap. But again, always couching in the like, I'm just one person. I might be wrong, right? Like right. <laughs> that kind of thing. Regardless of how you phrase it, it's a 50-50 shot that you're going to get feedback either way. Like some people just are never going to give it to you. And that's also fine. Right. Sometimes the person you're emailing isn't in the position to even give it to you. And like to get that in front of somebody who's in position to give that feedback to you is just more work than they're willing to do. Right. Yeah. The way I've always phrased it is um, just, do you have any feedback on what I could improve on if I were to reapply in the future? Yep. I think if you're emailing people to ask for advice on career stuff, it it pays to be as specific as possible. Right. Because it lets them address that question as quickly as possible. I know when people email me, I do feel like flattered to be in a position that like people want my opinion on something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I try to apply to everybody. I'm sure there's people out there listening who'd be like, I sent that guy an email and he didn't reply to me. But to them, your email may, be, may just still be sitting in my inbox with a little star. I was talking to Chris Toomey the other day about how I handled these things. And like they sit in my inbox with a star because it's like this requires a thoughtful response and I do not have time for thoughtful response right now. So it's going to sit here for a little bit. <laughs> which is really a, a weird thing about email. It's like when something is obviously garbage, then you delete it. If you get an email that's like, doesn't require a response, you read it and you delete it. If you get an email that's not important and requires some like quick response, you just immediately give that response and then delete it. It's the emails that like you get that you're like, Hmm, I have to think about this one that you just never respond to and never handle and <laughs> just sit in yep. the inbox. <laughs> So I've got some of those. I cleared I, the reason why I wanted to talk about this today is I, I went through the process on uh, Tuesday, I think, of clearing out the list of people that were in my inbox that had asked for advice that I had not yet gotten back to. 
Well, good. I mean, it's a nice thing to do. And, I, and I'm not as nice. I do not try to reply to every single one. <laughs> it sounds like you get more than me, probably two to three times as much as I do. So so I can I can see that at that point, it may not make sense. One of the things Chris suggested actually was like, he brought it up in the sense of like, when he was working on Upcase, people would ask him questions directly. And he would say like, can you post this to the forum so I can reply publicly? You know, we don't have a forum. So I can't say like, post this to the forum and I'll get back to you publicly. But his suggestion was like, maybe batching some of these up and replying and then being like, do you mind if I used an anonymized version of this on the show? That kind of thing. But that's kind of like what we're doing here. The biggest things tend to be like, I've done insert some entry level learning here, right? How do I get people's attention? Or potentially like, um, how do I transition from a place where I'm doing, I get this a lot, a lot of people doing like ops or IT work and they want to do development. And how do I get from doing ops and IT work into doing development work for the company I'm working for or for a new, co- like actually what they often say is like, how do I find a job doing development work? And my response is generally like, I bet there's some development work you can do in your ops work right now. Again, to just start building something. Yeah, because I mean, the process there, I would say very much is the same as as the process of if you are doing any other job that isn't development, like learn the technology that you want to develop in and then apply for jobs. Right. I don't remember where this originated. I heard the story from Ben Orenstein at one point where he was talking about development, not necessarily needing to be the title of your job, but having it be like your superpower to doing whatever your job is. Right. So if your job is, I think the example he gave when he told the story was like, this person's job was like living in spreadsheets. And so they learned enough like VB script to really like (laughs) unlock what they could do there. So if like it stands to reason these days, if your job is in IT operations, you probably know some sort of like automated tool thing, like puppet or chef or whatever the new hot thing is ansible. I don't know. And so there's a little bit there, but like then building systems around that or knowing Docker and whatever that all the new Docker environment stuff is like, that's a job in and of itself. And I understand that's not necessarily development, but I bet there's stuff around that you could do to automate, even automating the automation systems, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I remember back when I used to work in marketing, people used to think I was a wizard on certain tasks, like certain types of photo editing, because I I just learned the macro suite in Photoshop really well. Mm -hmm. And so was very good at automating the repetitive tasks. Right. And that's what I did in my first job out of college. My first job out of college, the like it was to do a little bit of development, I guess, but mostly it was like, you're going to walk around and service people's desktop computers at this company and you're going to do some server maintenance and things like that. But I got really good at doing tasks. Like I wrote little VB scripts to like do repetitive things for me. And then what happened is I ended up solving all of the like silly desktop tickets really quickly and leaving myself plenty of time to be like, oh, I'm going to write a web app for people submitting desktop tickets or something like that, right? Right. And then kind of just proving that like I should be doing that work rather than the work I was assigned to. <laughs> right. Which again, worked for me, my luck, my privilege, my advantage, I guess, and a little bit of like I'm just going to do this and not ask somebody about it. Not hide it, but not ask somebody about it. That kind right. of thing. There's an interview that Satya Nadella did on CNBC about the GitHub acquisition and he I don't know where this statistic comes from, but if it's true, I found it very interesting. He mentioned that the amount of growth for developer jobs in non-software companies is growing three to four times faster than the number of developer jobs in software companies, which mm-hmm. actually makes a lot of sense. But I just found, I found that very interesting how many normal businesses now are starting to feel the need to hire developers. Yeah. Software is eating the world. Yeah. All right. Cool. We should wrap up. Sure. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 161. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. 
If you have feedback about this episode or any of our other episodes, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at hosts at bike shed.fm or leave a comment on our website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed and we'll see you next time. Adios. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.